I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. As we resume our study in the book of Genesis after taking a break out of our time in the book. If you remember, leading up to this passage, we saw that God certainly had a plan for the nations, that He was going to redeem a people for Himself. And we've, over the past few weeks in our break from Genesis, been looking at the book of Jonah, and we've seen in a very tangible way in the people of Nineveh that God has been faithful to bless the nations as He promised. And so now as we return back to Genesis 12, we will see how God has ordained that plan for the nations to be fulfilled and accomplished through Abram and his offspring. And so this passage introduces us to God's plan to redeem all the peoples of the earth from sin and their separation from him. If you've found your way to Genesis chapter 12, I invite you to stand with me as we read the first three verses together. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we dive back into the book of Genesis this morning, I think it will be helpful for us to review where we've been in the book of Genesis. Starting all the way at the beginning, we saw that God created a perfect and sinless creation, all for the glory of His name. This would be the stage upon which the plan of redemption to the glory of God would unfold. But on the earliest chapters of Scripture, we saw that God's creation became tainted with sin through the rebellion of His image bearers. And that sin continues out of the garden in the sons of Adam, the, the sin of Cain and murdering, murdering Abel, and the sons of Cain in Lamech as he is a man of violence and of wickedness. And so the early chapters of Genesis crescendo towards the flood. And in Genesis chapter 6, we read that in some ways, the sin of man has reached a new height as God describes the iniquity of the human heart and the intentions of the human heart being evil all the time. Well, even after purging the world by a flood, the sinfulness of mankind continues. And so we see that sin manifest in the immediate descendants of Noah and his children. And chapter 11 is somewhat of a culmination or a climax of the sinfulness of mankind after the flood. We read there in chapter 11 about this Tower of Babel as men settled there in the Valley of Shinar and began to construct this tower in an effort to make a name for themselves. Uh, this was the height of human rebellion as they seeked to glorify themselves. They were united in their rebellion against God as they sought to show their own glory by their own efforts. And so the the, the message of Genesis up until this point has been that the curse of sin and the effects of the fall have brought humanity to complete and utter ruin. And so now as we turn the page to Genesis chapter 12, we're left with questions. What about God's purpose of creation? Is he still going to glorify his name in this great and tremendous way? What about God's plan for the world to be filled with glory through his image bearers? What about God's promise of redemption made in Genesis 3.15? Well, as we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 12, all of this is answered in God's call of Abraham, or as he or of Abram, or as he will later be called Abraham. But the problem is, as we saw at the end of Genesis 11 is that Abram, in essence, is just like the tower builders of the early parts of Genesis 11. 
We read in Genesis chapter 11 that there was nothing special or good about Abram. We learned that he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, that he himself was an idolater worshiping false gods. And so in every way, even in the line of promise through Shem, which God is going to bring one who's going to bless the nations, in every way it seems that the spirit of Babylon marks the human race. One author put it this way, the culture of Babel, though dispersed, has triumphed. There was no foreseeable future other than darkness, and there was certainly no human power to invent a future. Mankind was hopelessly lost. But as we look to Genesis chapter 12, God acts in an incredible, supernatural, and redemptive way. He calls Abram out of darkness and sin in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes through him. And Abram responds in faith, believing God. And so through this belief, Abram becomes this incredibly significant figure throughout Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament reflect on the life and faith of Abraham as a model for us to follow. Abram is spoken of as a man who believed God. He's spoken of in Romans 4.11 as the father of all who believe. And he's spoken of several times in Scripture, including James chapter 2, as a friend of God. Abram is this significant figure that through which we view our response to God. He is a model of what it means to respond to God in faith. And so he's an example to all of us who believe. Certainly the Old Testament saints viewed Abram as this model of faith. We think of the likes of Moses and of Joshua and of David who accomplished tremendous feats for God. And yet all of them were introduced to God by the name, the God of Abraham. And so they would look to Abraham as their father in the faith, just as we look back to Abraham as our father in the faith. And so one author says, most of us are aware that we'll never become lawgivers like Moses. We are unlikely to become generals for God like Joshua or kings like David. We will not be prophets except in the sense that we are called to be witnesses for Christ. But although we cannot be lawgivers, kings, generals, or prophets, we can be what Abram was, a man who heard God and believed that God can be trusted to do what he says he will do and who based his entire life on that conviction. And so we look to Abram as a model of faith that was granted to him by God. But this life of faith that Abram so faithfully lived out began with God's call upon his life and the gracious promises that God makes to him. And so this morning, as we look to these first three verses of Genesis 12, we want to consider God's call of Abram and its importance for us and its importance for God's redemptive purposes in the world. So if you're following along this morning and taking notes, the first thing that I want us to see out of these verses is that God called Abram to obey his word. God called Abram to obey his word. Now, I want to say at the outset that I, I have a tendency, I've noticed already my tendency to say Abraham rather than Abram. Certainly, he's going to have his name changed later, um, but I'll try my best to refer to him as Abram as the text does. But first, as we see out of the beginning in verse 1, the Lord says to Abram, And go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And already we've noted that God's call comes to Abraham regardless of the fact that there is no good in Abram himself. Abram is a man of faith, but that's not why God called him. In fact, Abram is a man of faith because God called him. God doesn't look down from heaven to find a person who has a little bit of good in them or a, a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of saving faith. God doesn't look down from heaven in hopes to find one human that might be willing to obey his call. Remember, back from Genesis 6, the inclinations of the human mind are nothing but evil all the time. Genesis 8.21 says the inclinations of the human heart is evil from youth onward. 
Genesis chapter 11 in the building of the Tower of Babel revealed to us that this is the inclination of the human heart as they build this tower into the heavens seeking to usurp and supplant the place of God. They're seeking to make a name for themselves. And this is the people, this is the humanity that Abram is a part of. We read a couple weeks ago or several weeks ago now in Joshua chapter 24 that Joshua says to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. The call of God comes to Abram in Genesis 12, 1, to a man who is uh, submerged in sinfulness and in idolatry. He's not a man of faith in Genesis 12, 1. God's calling upon his life and God's word coming to him transforms him into a man of faith. Like Noah before him, he is not one who found favor in the eyes of the Lord because there's anything favorable or good about him. Rather, God shows his grace and favor toward him in spite of the sinfulness in his heart along with the rest of humanity. Abram is called out of his sin and called out of his idolatry. And so this call of God in verse 1 explains why his family left their home in, uh, in the last chapter. In Genesis eleven thirty one, we read that Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. And so God calls Abram out of Ur, requiring this personal sacrifice. As the word of God comes to him, he calls him out of everything that he's ever known. And this call gets increasingly more difficult. He says, Abram, I'm calling you out of your land. I'm calling you away from your country and away from your home. But not only that. Abram, I'm calling you away from your people, your nation. I'm calling you away from your relatives and your country. But Abram, I'm going to ask you to do something even more difficult. I'm calling you to leave your father's household. I'm calling you to to leave those relationships that are nearest and dearest to you. I'm calling you to forsake everything that you've known and believe and trust that I have something better for you. I think the vagueness of God's calling upon his life would make this even more difficult. He tells him to go to the land that I will show you. You see, God at the outset does not tell him where he's going to go. He says, go out from your land, repent and leave your peoples. And I'm going to later show you a land that I'm going to grant to you. He doesn't know that God is talking about Canaan. He doesn't know where this land is. And he didn't know until he got there. He was simply called to trust God and follow where he led. And it's this act of obedience to this calling that leads Abram to become known as a father of faith. Well, as we continue using this word faith, I think it's important that we know something about what we're talking about when we use the word faith. Sometimes we have a tendency to use words without giving them definitions because they're Christianese sort of words that we have a general sense of understanding of what they mean. But here, when we're speaking about Abram as a man of faith, we first want to recognize that faith depends upon knowledge. It requires knowing something in order to believe that something. We must know and understand what is being communicated by God. And so here in this text, the word of the Lord comes to Abram and gives him knowledge of what it is he's supposed to believe and obey. You see, faith hears God's word, and as God speaks, faith hears and responds. Faith is not an empty or blind faith. Rather, the content of faith is the spoken word of God. 
And so as we see here in Genesis 12, as God intervenes in Abram's sinfulness and in his idolatry, the word of the Lord comes to him informing his conscience and it calls him to respond to the word of God in faith. Faith is based on a knowledge of the revealed word of God. But faith also requires belief and trust. You see, we're going to read later in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Faith requires embracing the truth of God and trusting that it's a good, sovereign, and wise God who is giving his word and that he is trustworthy in his character. Faith leans into the character of God in this way. But faith also requires embracing God alone. Faith is a, a, an act of exclusivity that I'm trusting in and I'm believing one over the rest of the gods of this world. God is worshipped alone. That's why he calls Abram out of Ur and out of his idolatry. It's why the offsprings of Abram will be given the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Faith is an exclusive relationship with the God who made us. But ultimately, faith demands commitment or surrender, obedience. Faith obeys the call of God. You see, this call upon Abram's life was an authoritative call. This wasn't a suggestion, uh, nor was it just an inquiry. Abram, are you willing to leave your land and your family and to go out into a land that I'm going to show you? No, the word of God calls demanding obedience in the authority of the Creator. And so there's this surrender and embrace of the calling of God and an act upon what he believed to be true about God. We saw this same concept in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah. And Noah likewise is known as a man of faith who believed God, who was considered favored by God, who had been shown God's grace, but Noah, though he believed God that God was going to destroy the world by a flood, demonstrated that faith by acting in obedience and building the ark. Had Noah said, Lord, I believe that you're going to destroy the world by a flood, but then did not act in obedience and build the ark that was going to preserve his family, that would not have been true faith. And so we see in the same way in Abram that God calls him out to obey. The author of Hebrews makes this clear to us when he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. And so we see in Hebrews 11 as well as in Genesis 12 that Abram obeys God. If we speak about faith, we have to speak about faith in terms of obedience. And so faith understands, trusts, embraces, and surrenders to God's word. Well, dear Christians, faith has not changed for us today. Faith demands that we believe in God's word as he has revealed himself to us fundamentally in the basic message of God's revelation to us in the gospel. There are many who would say that they believe in God or believe in Jesus, but they don't have even a basic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't understand their relationship to God being marred by sinfulness. They don't understand their transgressors before God. They don't understand the holiness of God. They don't know really that Jesus is the Son of God and that His sin-atoning death accomplished the atonement of sin on the cross. They believe, or rather they read in Scripture, that Jesus was raised from the dead, but still it's not informed by a knowledge of what that means for them. That's why last week, if you remember from our sermon in 1 Corinthians 15, there are some things of first importance. There are some things of central importance to the gospel of Jesus Christ that a person must know to be in right relationship with God. But beyond this 
simple understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life of the believer and our ongoing obedience to God must be informed by God's word. We do not follow our emotions or our gut feelings if they are not informed by the word of God. The only way that God informs the faith of the believer is through his word by the power of his spirit. And so in our walk with God, as we seek to obey his will, we don't close ourselves off and shut our eyes and tune into some deep emotional gut feeling that we have in our heart to determine the will of God for our lives. Dear Christian, our consciences and our acts of obedience that we believe that we are pursuing that which God has called us to must be informed by the word of God, just as Abram's faith was informed by the word of God. Our faith must also include belief and trust. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the message about Christ. We read all throughout Scriptures that there is a dependency, a trust, a uh, sufficiency that is found in Christ Jesus alone unto salvation, to have faith in His name, to believe God and His gospel in this way means to trust that Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. That's why when the Philippian jailer comes to the Apostle Paul as they're singing in the jail, he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. Acts 16, 30 through 32. And so here we read again that the, the message of trusting in the Lord that was given to the Philippian jailer, one is informed by the word of the Lord as they speak the word of the Lord to him, but also this faith, this believing in the Lord Jesus that is uh, commanded to him is marked by trust in the Lord Jesus. And so while there are many who can describe the gospel, they don't believe the gospel in this way. They have knowledge, but they separate their hearing and understanding from belief. Likewise, we as believers, I think, often have a struggle with separating belief from knowledge. We can know what God says, but be reluctant to trust that God is good, sovereign, and wise, and has declared in his word that which is best for us. I think about the nature of suffering in this life. Oftentimes we're tempted to doubt the goodness of God as we suffer, whether that's the loss of a loved one, whether that's sickness that has come upon our body or some hardship that we're experiencing in our life. We're tempted to doubt the character of God. We're, we know what God's word says about these things, but in that moment we're tempted not to trust that God's character is worth depending on and resting in in that moment. I think about the same thing in conflict resolution when we have disagreement or conflict with one another in our lives. When we think about conflict resolution, it's very clear what God's word says about it in his word. And yet we're tempted to think in our hearts and minds that surely that won't work in this situation. Surely I know better. Surely I'm going to go around what God says about resolving the conflict that resides in our lives. These are just some of the ways that we are tempted to doubt the character of God and not have faith as God has described it in his word. Faith likewise embraces God alone. Dear Christian, there is a call to us to be separate from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And so for us to live by faith means that we are friends with God and at enmity with the world. We can't be friends both with God and with the world, James says. In fact, he calls that spiritual adultery. We can't serve two masters, Jesus says. Either we'll cling to the one and hate the other or despise the one and hold on to the other. We cannot serve two masters. We must embrace God alone. That's what faith demands of us. This is an exclusive relationship. One author says it this way. 
Either our faith will separate us from the world, or the world will separate us from our faith and our God. But ultimately, faith requires obedience, dear Christian. The Bible says in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. Now, we certainly want to recognize that obedience does not secure our righteousness, but rather we obey out of a position of righteousness that is granted to us by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear Christian, our faith is ongoing as we live in obedience to the gospel and to God. That's why Paul, addressing the church at Rome, says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers resoundingly, by no means. Why does he say it in this way? It's because he's given us this uh, fundamental understanding of the gospel all the way back in Romans chapter 1 where he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We don't continue in sin. Rather, we seek to know God's will and know, through His Word so that we might continue in faith, obeying His Word and obeying His will. Dear Christian, I ask you this morning, is your faith grounded in the Scriptures? Are you seeking to embrace God alone, separating yourself from the world and obeying His Word with your conscience and with your faith informed by His Word. Are you struggling with a weak faith this morning, dear Christian? Uh, struggling to believe God's Word and to believe His promises. Oftentimes when our faith is weak, it's because we've been neglecting to expose ourselves to the knowledge of God's Word that must inform our faith. Our faith gets starved when we aren't living, feeding upon the Word of God. But dear Christian, I also ask you, are you seeking to obey God's word? As the word of the Lord comes to you this morning and other times as you hear the word preached or you read the scriptures, as you see how God calls you to separate out of the world and leave behind sin and all that is worldly and trust in Christ alone, are you seeking to do that informed by the word of God? Or have you become complacent and self-satisfied in the place that you are in your Christian life? The Christian life is a life of ongoing faith and ongoing obedience. That certainly doesn't mean that it won't be difficult or that it won't be a struggle or that we might not have missteps. Certainly as we progress through our reading of the book of Genesis, we're going to find all sorts of missteps in the life of Abram. But he continued to persevere, trusting the God of grace that had called him in the beginning. And so let's marvel at the work of God in the life of Abram as he calls him to a life of faith. And remember that God's grace that operated in the life of Abram also operates in us. You see, the true subject of the story of Abraham is the God of Abraham. Abram is a, a man living in sin and an idolatry. He lives in Ur and he's completely satisfied with his way of life. But God, by his sovereign grace, calls him out of that. He would have remained under God's curse and under God's wrath. But God comes to him with a promise and called him by his grace. He who was worshiping idols and in sin against his God was called by God's unmerited grace. And he accomplishes his sovereign purposes through him. It's the same way in the people of Israel, the offspring of Abram. We read there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as Moses explains to them that they are a holy people. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to his ancestors, to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh and king of Egypt. 
Allow me to bookend this, this discussion on the faith of Abraham, reminding you that Abram's faith was a gift of God to him. It's not because Abram was deserving it. It's not because he had a spark of faith within him. It's not because he had just a little bit of goodness enough to merit some sort of favor of God. It's a result of unconditional sovereign election and nothing meritorious in him or in you or I. Dear Christian, we can rejoice like our Father. Father Abraham rejoiced that God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has made us a people of his own possession by his sovereign grace alone. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And it's out of that position in Christ Jesus that we continue increasing and growing and living by faith. God called Abram to obey his word in faith. But there's a second thing that I want us to see in this passage this morning, and it's that God called Abram to believe his promises. God called Abram to believe his promises. You see, in verses 2 through 3, we read these I will statements of God. Look with me there in the scriptures. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's these verses here as we anticipate what's coming for us in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. It's these verses and these promises of God that serve as the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. Because when Abram doubts the promises of God in Genesis 15, God ratifies a covenant around these very same promises, ensuring that Abraham, I'm going to do what I've promised to do already. And so God establishes Abraham, just as we saw Adam in the beginning, as a federal head of this Abrahamic covenant, as there's all of the offspring of Abraham that are going to come through his lineage. There's this kingdom and this people that are going to be built from Abraham. And there's going to be a promised seed, a, a seed that's going to come through Abraham. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is going to come through Abram. The seed of the woman is going to be the seed of Abraham. And so we see all of these promises of God that are bestowed upon Abraham out of sheer grace of God. I want to summarize these in, in five points. There's one author that I read this week that summarized them in four. And so we're going to take those four, but we're going to add another one. So this isn't completely original to me. But he describes these promises of God as a, a promise of a place, a promise of a people, a promise of provision, a promise of protection, and a promise of purpose. We read there in verse 2, he says, I'll make you into a great nation. Excuse me, even back in verse 1, uh, he will take you from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so the first promise of God here to Abraham is a promise of a place as Abram leaves his destination without knowing where he's going, he has the pure word of God that I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to provide a land for you, for you and your offspring to dwell. I think there's something worth noting here regarding the Christian life that though God does call us to forsake this world and to give things up, he promises to provide for any lack that may result as we believe the promises of God to leave everything behind us and to put our hands to the plow, not looking back and following Jesus, there is a promise of a greater provision than the things that we left behind. Abram, I'm calling you to leave your previous land, but I'm going to grant you something greater, something of greater value. And so, dear Christian, let us be reminded that in this land promised to Abram, that God promises to meet our needs and to provide us a greater home. As we leave this world behind us, there is a greater home in heaven that is the spiritual and typological fulfillment of the promise made to Abram. 
You see, as we reflect on this promise made to Abram, and as the author of Hebrews reflects on the promise made to Abram, it is clear that there was a natural descendant and offspring that inhabited the land of Canaan that God granted to Abram. And God kept all of his promises to Abraham in this way regarding the land and regarding the people. But the author of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament helps us to understand that this provision of a place points to something greater than a simple home here on earth. It points us to a city whose builder and maker is God. It points us to the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth where God's people will dwell with him for all eternity and be in his presence. This is the home that Abram left sojourning, looking for. Yes, God took him to a place here on earth and he fulfilled these promises. But even Abram knew that that pointed to something greater, that he would be with his God forever. God promised a place for Abram, and he promises a place for his people. Well, there's also this promise of a people. God says that he will make you into a great nation. There's going to be many descendants that come from Abram. And right off the bat, we should remember that God made a note, or rather Moses made a note in Genesis chapter 11, that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren, that she was unable to have children. And so her inability to conceive children, though mentioned in passing in Genesis 11, sets up this huge problem in Genesis 12, that God is going to bless them and give them an offspring by his unconditional grace. You see, he doesn't promise on anything but on his own will and on his own character. It's not as if God looks at Abram and say, Abram, I, I would make you into a great nation, but unfortunately you're unable to have children. No, God speaks to Abram and it's going to be unmistakably clear that God has done something for Abram that he could not do for himself. When Abram becomes the father of a great nation of people and all the nations of the earth are blessed through him, it will be not that it is an act of God alone. He turned Sarah's barrenness into a blessing to make his name great. This promise of a people is dependent upon God alone as well. He promises that there's going to be a, a nation that comes out of Abraham and this is fulfilled most directly in the people of Israel that are called out of Egypt. We read those verses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it's noted there uh, that it's not because they're a great people. It's not because they're numerous. It's not because they have a great military. It's not because they're economically wealthy. It's not because of any of those things. It's because God set his love upon them, and he chose them and called them out of himself, and he keeps his covenant with Abraham. And so the, the greatness of this nation and the greatness of this people will be achieved and granted by the act of God upon them. God sets his love on them and blesses them and even promises that the Son of God, the Messiah, is going to come through them. Well, again, dear church, as we read in the New Testament, we understand that this promise has a natural fulfillment in the people of Israel. But we also understand that Abraham is the father of faith to all who believe. We understand that God's promises point to a greater spiritual typological reality of the people of God who believe in the Son by faith. All of those who believe as Abraham believed are brought in and grafted into the people of God to be true spiritual Israel and the offspring of Abraham. We read in Genesis chapter, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, Paul says, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. And he goes on to say in verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. 
And so this promise of a people is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, this one true offspring through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And if we are united with him, then the blessing upon Abraham and the blessing upon his people is our blessing in Christ Jesus. And so there's this idea of a place and a people in this blessing and covenant with Abraham. And so it is at the very end of the scriptures as we think to the end of Revelation, there is a new place made for the people of God. There is a new heaven and a new earth that is free from sin that has been purged by Christ Jesus Himself. And there is a people of God in union with Him dwelling around the throne, praising His name forever and ever and enjoying the presence of the Lamb. This is the ultimate and climactic fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that God has made a place for His people. We see also this promise of provision. And in fact, there are two promises here. We read that He will bless you and make your name great. As Abraham leaves everything behind, God promises provision for him, that he's going to bless him and keep him, uh, that though you're coming out of Ur, God is, I'm going to provide for you, Abraham. In spite of the hardship and the pain and the suffering and all that you're going to give up in this life, there's going to be spiritual blessing for you. And I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be looked back upon as a father of faith. There's going to be significance for you because I have granted it to you. And so Abraham stands in stark contrast to the tower builders of Genesis chapter 11 as they seek to build a tower into the heavens and make a name for themselves. God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, come out of Ur. Stop seeking to make a name for yourself. I'm going to make a name for you. And through that, you will be a blessing. God promises protection. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And so God takes solidarity with Abraham. The friends and enemies of Abraham will be the friends and enemies of God. Those who honor Abraham, God will honor. Those who curse Abraham, God is going to curse. He seeks to provide for Abraham by even seeing himself identifying with, or rather Abraham identifying with him self. As I was reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of Jesus coming to Saul on, in Acts chapter 9 and revealing himself to him. As the bright light shines and the voice speaks out of heaven, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been persecuting the church. He had been persecuting believers. He had been persecuting the people of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And so, dear Christian, in the same way, this blessing of God resides upon us through faith in Christ in Abraham, that God unites with us in this way, that those who bless us, God will bless, and those who curse us, He will curse. But that's not for us to measure out, but to rest that God, who is just, will do what is right. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. And finally, dear church, the promise shows us the ultimate purpose of God's promise to Abraham here. It says at the end of verse 3, All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It is here that God lays out His plan of redemption for the nations. As we reflect back to God dispersing the nations throughout the earth in Genesis chapter 10 because of their sin at the Tower of Babel, we now have God's plan for this diversity of nations that they will be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. I think this is ultimately a continuation of the promise made to Eve and Adam well, rather to the serpent, and and Adam and Eve overheard this promise in Genesis 3.15. God, in in their fall, speaks there, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. We read there in Genesis 3 that there is a seed of the woman throughout the earth. There are many offspring of the woman who have faith in the promises of God, 
who are united to the one singular offspring who is that ultimate seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. And we read here in Genesis 12 that God narrows the scope through whom that seed will come. He will be a son of Abraham. He will come through his lineage. And so all of the Old Testament looks back on this in anticipation that God, through the people of Israel, is going to provide a Redeemer, going to provide a Messiah that will conquer the seed of the serpent, who will crush his head and will bring final victory to the people of God for all Ages. This is why in Galatians 3, as we read earlier, that he's referred to, Christ is referred to as Abraham's offspring. But we read earlier in our scripture reading in Acts chapter 3, that it is through Christ Jesus that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, Peter, after healing this man in Acts chapter 3, is preaching in Solomon's colonnade. And he says there in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And so Peter begins preaching to them Jesus, reminding the people there that they were a party to the crucifixion of the one whom God sent to redeem them. You killed the source of life, and we are witnesses of this. But Peter appeals back even beyond the death of Jesus, back into the Old Testament, and he says in verse 25 and 26, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And God raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. And so Peter speaks to them there and shows them that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessing, that there will be a blessing upon the nations through this offspring, is fulfilled in Jesus, whom he sent first to Israel and then to all the nations. And the blessing that is poured out on them is in part a turning away from our sins. It isn't necessarily material blessing. It's not promise of goodness and hope in this life. But the blessing that is promised through Abraham's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a turning away from our evil ways. We who have our intentions set on evil continually, we who are evil from our youth onward, God has poured out a blessing upon us in Jesus Christ that we might be turned away from that. We who have our hearts and souls and minds and every ounce of our being is set upon iniquity continually are blessed in Christ Jesus that he might turn us away from our evil ways. Are you here this morning and you're considering for the very first time your sinfulness and your idolatry before God? Are you for the very first time seeing yourself in the place of Abram before he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees? Are you seeing yourself positioned in rebellion against God and hopeless in your iniquity? There is a blessing that has been poured out in Jesus Christ for all the nations that you would be turned away from your evil ways, that you would repent and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ came to secure for you upon the cross of Calvary. If you would look to him, the source of life, if you would look to him, the source of truth, if you would put your faith wholly and completely and ultimately in Jesus Christ alone, God will turn you from your evil ways. God will turn you from your iniquity to faith in Jesus Christ. Will you look to him this morning and receive the blessing of God in Christ Jesus? But dear church, let us also be reminded together this morning that we give up this world and follow 
Christ. We believe the promises of God that there is a greater hope to come. That our hope is not in this life and in this world and in the things that we find satisfaction in. But we, like Abraham, are called to be sojourners in a foreign land. To believe that the promises of God are yes and amen in this life in Christ Jesus. But they are ultimately in Christ fulfilled in the life to come. We, like Abraham, say in Hebrews 11, By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Dear Christian, to receive the promises and blessing of God is to forsake this world and look to Jesus. To forsake all that this world has to offer and hope in the promises of God. Putting our complete and total faith not only in this life but in the life to come. We are staking our eternity in Jesus Christ. As we thought last week in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life we have hope alone, we are of all men most to be pitiable. But Abraham, our father in the faith, reminds us that we are not most to be pitied. But we are sojourners and strangers in this foreign land because the promises of God are enough for us in the future. That we are looking to find our ultimate contentment and joy and satisfaction and glory in the glory of God and eternity before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And so Abram is the father of faith to all who believe. And we are called this morning to obey in faith and to believe his promises. And ultimately, we are called to hope in the offspring that is the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Lord, we are reminded this morning that we are to be a people of faith. But we are only a people of faith because you have granted us faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us this week to trust in your name, to believe your promises, to hope not in this life, but in the one to come. Lord, call us out this week from our sin and our iniquity and rebellion. Forgive us, Lord, and take us to a land that you will show us. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, help us to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us look to the one through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed, knowing that he is actively turning us from our sins and turning us to himself. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, if there's one who doesn't know Christ this morning, we pray, God, that you would work supernaturally in their life to grant them faith. Lord, we pray that you would call them out of their sin as you called Abraham out and that he would be their father in faith and that Christ would be their savior. In Jesus' name, amen.